Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier and our guest today is Dr. Richard Davidson. In 2006, Dr. Davidson was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. He is a research professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he studies the short and long-term effects of meditation practice on human emotions and the circuitry of the brain. He holds a doctorate in biological psychology from Harvard University. Dr. Davidson has been honored with numerous awards for his work, including the most distinguished award for science given by the American Psychological Association, the Scientific Contribution Award. Tibetan spiritual leader the Dalai Lama has made it possible for him to study the brains of some of the world's most adept meditators. I am completely delighted to bring you Dr. Richard Davidson. Really such an honor to have this chance to talk with you. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Would you be willing to take us back to your early experiences with meditation and tell us a little bit about how you came to make a career as a scientist studying the brain and the mind-body connection? How did you get into it? Well, from very early on, I had the conviction that the mind was really a key to our own happiness and to transformation in our society, that transformation really needed to begin with oneself. And it was clear to me that in order to study the mind, it was necessary to study the brain, given the fact that the brain seems to be a critical substrate of the mind. And so I began a career studying the brain as a graduate student, and one of the principal areas that I was attracted to and has been a focus of our work really continuously since then is the topic of emotion. One's emotional life is really key to one's happiness and well-being, and it was clear to me that the study of the mechanisms of emotion, how the brain mediated emotion, the variations among people in emotional responding, all those kinds of questions were really central questions that had been, for the most part, ignored in modern scientific research. So I began a program of research on those topics, which in fact continues to this day. At the same time, I also had the conviction that who we are is not necessarily what we're capable of becoming, and that we had something to learn from the contemplative traditions, mostly from the East, that had much more systematically developed a map of the terrain of mental transformation. And so those were sort of the early inklings that I had that drew me. Were you already practicing yourself? I'm referring to the early 70s when I was a graduate student at Harvard. And uh, I was dabbling in meditation but really was not systematically practicing. And then in 1974, I went to India for the first time and spent three months in India and Sri Lanka And it was at that time that I did my first intensive meditation retreat and had uh, a taste of what it was to do more intensive practice. And since that time, I've had a regular meditation practice. So I've had a regular meditation practice now for more than 30 years. That's great. 
I'm just celebrating 20 years well, wonderful summer, and it's a great way to celebrate to be talking with you. There's so many different forms of meditation practice, and some of them include breath-focused meditation, meditating on a sound, loving-kindness meditation, and some moving meditations, walking meditation, tai chi. And so I wonder if you would... Tell us how you define what meditation is, especially vis-a-vis what the brain is doing during practice. Yeah, it's a wonderful question that you ask, and uh, you are absolutely right that uh, meditation comes in many forms. And uh, here in the West, lay people often think of meditation as if it were one thing, and it really refers to this multiplicity of practices that differ in likely very important ways. And so when I refer to meditation, I'm really referring to the whole terrain with a caution that the findings that are obtained for one kind of meditation practice will not necessarily generalize to other kinds of meditation practices. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we've shown among participants who are long-term meditation practitioners that the changes that we observe in the brain are very different during different types of meditation. So, for example, if practitioners are doing a concentration meditation where they're focusing their attention on a single object, uh, the brain is in a very different state compared to when they're doing a compassion meditation uh, designed to cultivate uh, feelings of compassion and loving kindness. So that's I think very, very important, and there's just only now beginning to be research which is distinguishing what the different biological signatures are of these different kinds of meditation practice. You've done so many different studies over the years. I'm wondering if you can sort of synthesize and distill your findings for the listeners here who may not have ever practiced at all and may not really know what this practice does in the brain, what have been the most salient findings and how do you see them applied? How would you like to see them applied in the world outside the lab? How can they help us? Sure. Well, very briefly, the kind of work that we've done has been varied and it's been on many different kinds of meditation practices. And to begin with and to segue from the previous question, we can classify meditation practices broadly into one of three types. Um, one type uh, we call uh, focused attention kind of meditation, which is meditation that emphasizes concentration. And it may be concentrating on an external object or it may be concentrating on the breath. Um, uh, but what is in common in those kinds of practices is... Um, the cultivation of concentration. Another kind of meditation we call open monitoring meditation. And in this kind of practice, the field of awareness is expanded and one is not concentrating on a single object or a single point, but rather the awareness is much less focused and is broader. And so in this kind of practice, whatever the dominant mental content might be would be the focus of attention. And so it could be a thought, it could be an emotion, it could be a sound, 
It could be a bodily sensation. It could be any of those. And it could be all of them simultaneously or virtually simultaneously. So that's called open monitoring. And a third kind of meditation practice is a meditation practice that is designed to explicitly cultivate particular kinds of positive emotions. And here we would place loving-kindness meditation and compassion meditation practices. We have done research on all three kinds, and they appear to produce very different changes in the brain. And the kinds of changes in the brain are changes that we would, for the most part, predict based upon what we know about brain function. So um, meditation practices that involve concentration engage systems that we know to be particularly involved in attention and selective attention. Uh, meditation practices that involve uh, open monitoring and a broader field of awareness uh, involve the synchronization of activity in wide, widely divergent regions of the brain. Um, and uh, this may correspond to... You lost me there for a second. Um, could you just explain what that is? Uh, it's when... Um, uh, there, uh, it's when different areas of the brain become um, very highly correlated, uh, and so they are actually operating in synchrony. Oh, they're working together. They're working together, and it may correspond to the subjective sense of having a um, an expansive or panoramic quality of awareness where uh, there are many different features to the percept uh, at any one moment. Uh, it may include um, sounds, it may include bodily sensations, it may include being aware of being aware. And so that's the, the kind of finding that you see during this kind of open monitoring meditation, during um, practices that involve the cultivation of positive emotion, we see areas of the brain engaged that are more explicitly involved in emotion and some of the emotional areas are turned on and become very highly activated, particularly in response to any emotional stimuli that occur during the meditation. Now, you asked the question about what might be the utility of these kinds of practices, and we're interested in exploring the usefulness and utility of these practices in a wide range of contexts. They range from their impact on bodily systems that may be important for health. So we've been interested in whether meditation, for example, might play an important role in, in certain kinds of healing. We have, in that kind of work, looked at effects on the immune system, which may be important. In other domains, we're interested in the impact of meditation in children in ways that may help them concentrate better and focus their attention more effectively, more skillfully. And so we have looked at attentional changes that may come about with certain kinds of meditation practices. These are changes in attention that may make a person not only better able to concentrate, but also notice more subtle cues in his or her environment. And this may play an important role in facilitating emotional communication where the perception of subtle emotional cues is important. So there are many different ways in which meditation may be useful. 
And again, we're only just beginning to uh, explore the implications of this. But I think there are two major areas of our culture where I think we're going to see um, a dramatic impact of this kind of practice. One is in education and the other is in medicine. And in medicine, we've already begun to see the importance of, of these kinds of practices. And I think in the educational arena, we'll see more of this over the next few years. Well, just speaking subjectively, I feel that I have changed so much through the practice of meditation, and some of the more subjective things are just a wider field of creativity. I'm an artist, and I've been able to move into different art forms and sort of know how to do things without really ever having studied how. So this uh-huh. kind of development of intuition and sort of a deeper wisdom, I think, that comes straight out of the body. And much more ability for empathy and compassion, not just among other people, but for other creatures. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And the self-awareness and what they can do for us in our culture, I mean, just even... Accident reduction, you know, just, just right. being aware of of that baby stroller right next to you when you're at a crosswalk, and being able to prevent someone else's accident possibly when when they're not fully aware of mm-hmm. what's going on around. That's uh, a very good example. And the mind body awareness just helps you know what food to eat and how much, and when you really need sleep, and when you need a change of pace. And the pleasure in simple things, you know, just being able to take so much more pleasure just in the warmth of the sun on your body or, or some sort of visual effect of light and shadow in the garden, just being um, more in touch and getting more of a sense of, of real joy out of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's great. So this ability to change, uh, I think, in, in your profession is, is spoken of as neuroplasticity. And my next question has to do with neuroplasticity. I, I studied some of your your literature and your other uh, audios, and I heard you say on the one hand that you've seen changes down to the level of gene expression mm-hmm. that lasts for the life of the organism. And also I heard you say that it's never too late to change the very structures of the brain. And so mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more from you about what things can be changed, and just what are the parameters there as you understand them now? Sure. Well, modern scientific research indicates that training and the environment can alter brain function in many different ways, and this is the general area known as neuroplasticity. There are many different mechanisms of neuroplasticity, and one of the mechanisms is changes in gene expression. And so it literally is possible for an organism through training to actually uh, alter gene expression in genes that are expressed in the brain that have important functional consequences. What would be an Uh, example of that? I'm not sure what gene expression is. Gene expression is really the, the kind of core machinery of the DNA You can have a gene for a certain characteristic, but it will only influence that characteristic to the extent that it is expressed. There are molecules that are part of the gene 
that are upstream from the main machinery or information in the gene that determine the extent to which that gene is expressed. How would this turn up on the level where we live? Well, first of all, I should just caution that this, all this work on gene expression to which I'm referring has been done at the animal level and not in humans because mm-hmm. it's not possible to uh, non-invasively um, examine gene expression in the brain. Um, so uh, having said that, there is um, an extensive corpus of research at the animal level which indicates, for example, and this is will make it hopefully concrete. Um, if you have an animal that's very anxious, um, a baby, and it's raised by a mother who is very nurturant and loving and just the antithesis of anxious, uh, it will actually change the gene expression in the baby's brain so that the genes that are that we know to be associated with anxiety are actually modified in their expression. And those modifications in gene expression, in fact, persist for the entire life of that organism. So through the parent-infant interaction, the parent can actually influence the infant's brain in ways that will impact gene expression in the infant's brain. I understand now. The nurture level can influence the tendency in one direction or another. Right. It can influence them very powerfully. Um, the, the fact that one sees changes at the level of gene expression is, in my view, nothing short of astounding and, and revolutionary in its implications. You have had people in the lab who have just taken this on meditation practice as part of the experiment you brought them in for. And you've mm-hmm. also worked with the Dalai Lama to get some of the most experienced adepts who practiced in their lifetime, I think you mm-hmm. said, over 60,000 hours, mm-hmm. long, mm-hmm. long retreats, three-year retreats. Mm-hmm. And so you have this knowledge about what the cumulative effect are of, of practicing meditation, and I wonder if you could share that information with us. Sure. We have, in fact, studied a very wide range of practitioners, from blank novices who just learned to practice to individuals who really are quite rare, who have dedicated the vast majority of their lives to training their mind. And... One of the things that we have observed is that on some of the measures of brain function that we have assessed, an estimate of the number of hours of lifetime practice strongly correlates with those measures of brain activity, suggesting that the more one practices, the more dramatic a change in brain function one is able to see. Now, we're still at a very early stage here, and... We don't really know whether there is an optimal amount of practice, whether the benefits from more intensive practice begin to asymptote at a certain level, that is, begin to level off. We just don't know from a scientific perspective what the nature of the learning curve is. And we also suspect 
that it's going to vary across people. That for some people, it will look different than for other people. And so this is a very vibrant area for investigation in the future. There is this long list of benefits that we explored a little while ago, and yet we live in a predominantly Christian culture, and I think that many Christians associate the practice of meditation with Eastern religious practice and just don't want to touch it because I think they feel that if they enter into a practice like this, it would in some way represent a betrayal of their faith. Now, I heard, I think, a colleague of yours in the field refer to meditation as mental hygiene, and I wonder if you have thought about this aspect and found a way to address this when you talk with people. Does a form of Christian prayer or other contemplative practice that Westerners could embrace um, create the same kind of changes in the brain and the mind-body system? Uh, that's a very good question. We don't know the answer to that. Uh, it, th- those studies just haven't been done. They certainly can be done, and uh, I suspect they will be done over the next couple of years. And I have interacted with some Christian contemplatives. Father Thomas Keating is one of them, and have heard him talk about centering prayer, which is done in his tradition. And from what I've been able to glean from his comments, I suspect that there will be some elements, at least, which are in common in centering prayer and in certain types of Buddhist meditation practices. But there may also be some differences, and those are issues that we'll need to explore in the future. It's also the case that I think that the kind of practices which we've been studying can be extricated from their religious context and presented in a completely secular way, which would be um, absolutely compatible with any other religion. And this is something that the Dalai Lama has been very consistently saying as well. So what's on the horizon for your research? Uh, What are you looking to do? What are your strongest interests now? And also, if you could tell people how to become better informed about your work and how to to get to your website. In terms of what's on the horizon, we are continuing in all of the various areas of meditation research that we've spoken about. One of the areas that we are particularly interested in is whether very short-term training among individuals who are completely new to meditation can make a discernible difference in their brain and as well as in their behavior. And so for this work, we're actually uh, training people over a two-week period, just a half hour a day for two weeks. And our preliminary findings indicate that we can see some very systematic changes in the brain after just two weeks of practice. And so I think this really provides a hopeful sign that even short amounts of practice can make a difference. We're also interested in further exploring how meditation may impact certain virtuous qualities like cooperation and altruism and determining better ways of measuring those kinds of characteristics. We, in addition, are doing studies that look more systematically at how the changes in the brain produced by meditation influence the body in ways that may be germane to certain kinds of health outcomes. 
And so here we're probing the effect of certain meditation practices as they influence the brain in modulating aspects of the immune system and particularly immunological processes that play a role in inflammation, since inflammation is so important to a number of different diseases. So those are some of the issues that are on the horizon. In terms of learning about our work, uh, you can Google my name and you'll get to our lab websites. We are also creating a new center here at the University of Wisconsin called the Center for Creating a Healthy Mind, which will embody this work, and it'll be a context in which we can actually enhance our activities in this area. And so there will be a website for this new center in the next month or two, and again, it should be easily found by going to my name. You've been listening to Dr. Richard Davidson. Dr. Davidson, this has been fantastic. I think I speak for many in thanking you so much for your work, and thanks a million for sharing this work with us on the show. You're most welcome. 